Hello and welcome to this podcast titled What Happens When Doctors Get Sick. My name is Damsi Dare and I'm currently a second year medical student studying at Bristol University. I have a huge interest in the medical humanities so when I got the opportunity to make a podcast of my own I took it with both hands. This is my first ever podcast so I'm hoping it turns out well. I'm very lucky to be joined by two amazing guests, Dr Nicola Taylor, a liaison psychiatrist and a senior tutor at Bristol Medical School, someone who I received excellent lectures from. Few are in her unique position of both understanding why doctors might struggle to access healthcare and being intricately involved with medical education. And Dr Bethan John, a doctor who has personally struggled with her mental health whilst working as a junior doctor. Bethan has a large social media presence where she talks about being a doctor who has struggled with her mental health. You can find her at Miss Bethan E. John on Twitter. Welcome everyone to the podcast. So, um, nice to meet you both. I thought I'd first ask, in terms of your career, what are you doing now and how did you find yourself here? I guess we could go to Bethan first. Um, so, yeah, so in terms of my career, um, I'm currently kind of in between things I guess so I'm currently working for the government and and the department of work and pensions kind of indirectly doing medical assessments and things like that um but obviously this is not my long-term plan previously was a neurosurgery trainee that wasn't even my plan either I wanted to be a neurologist initially but kind of yeah kind of moved I think to neurosurgery as neuro they were short-staffed at the time whilst I was working in neurology as an F2 and kind of got stuck in and, and really enjoyed that and almost in a way fell into that and did that for six years also did a, a year of kind of a related PhD as well and thought that spine surgery was absolutely what I wanted to do and still do miss it in a way, but realised at that point that the environment and the lifestyle maybe was not exactly what I wanted and had this kind of feeling that I didn't fit in and things. And so, yeah, so I left and thought about kind of what else I would want to do and what I thought I was better suited for. And I've always had this kind of niggling thing in the back of my mind about general practice and uh, yeah, that's how I've ended up then applying for general practice. And I start as a GPST1 in February 2022. Yeah, that's really cool. GP. Wow. I'm not, not sure where I could do it, but it's really stressful at the moment. Yeah, it, it's having a hard time at the moment, isn't it? Yeah. And Nicola, where are you at at the moment? Well, I have the best job in the world most of the time because half of the time I'm the senior tutor for the medical school at Bristol. And half the time I'm a liaison psychiatrist. A consultant in psychiatry and worked down at Bristol Royal Infirmary, and I, I kind of was smiling when you said you sort of fell into it, Bethan, because I think that happens more often than we let on, and I certainly didn't think about being a psychiatrist or even a doctor um, when I was a kid, but the first job I got it happened to be in psychiatry in the days before you had to apply for training, and I remember just my first job thinking, I can't go back to the real world after this. It's just brilliant. And being interested in the people that I met and the people that I helped look after. And it's been uh, a really genuinely fascinating and interesting and wonderful job so far. And I love it. And I'll work with a great team. And in the medical school, I kind of fell into that as well as the opportunity took me. I applied for the job to help think about something different, well-being and pastoral care in the medical school. And one of the things that I think about a lot now is how often the two get kind of intertwined. 
and what the differences might be and what the similarities might be. Yeah, that's really cool. And um, Bethan, on your Twitter, you talk about having um, mental illness and like struggling with that. So like, what's the story behind that? Like what what's happened? Um, yeah, so it's been a kind of going on for a few years, I think, essentially. But I don't know, it's always difficult to tell, I think, when these things like suddenly kind of strike you. But yeah, I was kind of in training at the time um, and just kind of noticed about three years ago that just things didn't feel quite right. Like I had, you know, I had a good job. I had a training number. You know, I wasn't didn't have to worry about work for however many years I was doing what I kind of wanted to do. And yeah, things just weren't kind of feeling great, I guess. And yeah, I initially thought oh, I'm just feeling run down or temporarily burnt out and went to kind of the GP with those very vague symptoms and had like blood tests and everything. And of course, they they came back as normal and it was kind of like, well, what is going on? And I don't know, I kind of just she mentioned it to me and I kind of thought about it a bit more. And we had a chat and something kind of clicked. And it's a difficult one because I guess, like, you know, we never know kind of what triggers these things. And for me, it like work wasn't the cause, like not at all. But, you know, it did kind of, I guess it did contribute. I was having a difficult time at work and also then kind of personal and, and kind of family issues and things as well. And though I think, I guess it must be like a snowball thing. And already then when you're not feeling great or on top of things mentally, the more things that kind of chip away at you then, I guess I just started to notice it more and more. But um, yeah, it was about kind of three years ago that I, I guess not come to terms with it or accepted it, but I guess finally realised that something wasn't great. And I want to ask Nicola, in your experience, what signs do you kind of see when you feel like a medical student is unwell or, or even a doctor is becoming unwell? Do you like, is there anything that you look out for? Well, I think Bethan's hit up on a really important point of my experience, which the beginnings of being unwell feel and look an awful lot like being knackered and run down and burnt out and full up emotionally, which can happen to even very well people under the pressures of the job sometimes. And it's enormously difficult to tell them apart. So one of the things that I would say to all of you guys is if you're wondering about it, go and see somebody with a degree in this and go and see a doctor to try and work out what's expected, what could be normal, what could be the result of something going on and what's an illness which needs treatment. And the other thing that I try to say is have an awareness of yourself because what looks like illness to me isn't what looks like illness to Bethan or to Joe or to Anna or anybody else. So you need to know yourself a little bit and that's enormously difficult to do. So for example, I know that if I can't find something to wear in the morning, I need to take a day off. Like you want to catch it right at the beginning before it's an illness so you can have time to think, what do I need to do about this when things aren't running smoothly? And if you think about it, that makes sense, right? If I can't decide what to wear in the morning, I can't make decisions about people's care. That would be really odd. So (laughs) that's the time for me to say the first chance, just get a day of doing nothing. And for someone else, it might be a day of going for a run or going for a swim or playing with the dog or scratching the nose or watching Judge Judy or whatever it is that works for you to just give yourself that sort of decompression headspace and a bit of time to think about what's going on for you before it even gets to illness. 
That's really important, I think, um, being able to like know yourself and catch your illness before it happens. I also want to ask, is it strange going to the doctor as a doctor? Yeah, it's, it's a difficult one. I've always been, don't judge me, but I've always been terrified of doctors anyway for some reason. <laughs> I don't quite know why I came one. But, um, but yeah, it's, it was always one of those things. I think for me, it was always something about like relinquishing control and, and like kind of being vulnerable in a situation. But something like this, I guess because of the nature of it, 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 it was difficult because, again, there's like another layer of vulnerability, you know, just talking about mental health sometimes makes you feel quite vulnerable. And I found myself very much stuck in a place where I wanted them to know that I was a doctor and that I kind of had, obviously not expertise in this area, but you know, I kind of wanted to be included in in the decision making and, you know, kind of that to be respected. But on the same, on the flip side, sorry, I was also struggling with just decision making in general as part of kind of my problems with anxiety and depression. Like I didn't know what was kind of right or wrong to do. And I would constantly deliberate about things. And that ended up in quite an unhealthy cycle as well. So at some at, at some stages, I just wanted them to take all responsibility. And I would just be like, yeah, I'll do whatever you say. I'll take whatever medication you want. I'll do anything you say. And I just kind of, at the same time as having control, also wanted to completely relinquish that control and just be told what to do so it's it's difficult i think because sometimes and i and i know this from kind of my own practice and seeing patients who are you know healthcare professionals there's just this kind of thing where you feel you have to acknowledge that they are a healthcare professional and and they have expertise and they might have decisions or opinions about things which you might not have in a conversation or or an encounter with a with a non kind of clinical person so yeah, it's a really difficult kind of position to be in, I think, in that respect. And uh, Nicola, have you ever um, treated like doctors as patients? Like, was that weird for you, like treating them? Oh, I've treated loads of doctors and some medical students as patients. And it's horrible. It's a nightmare. Because the thing is, it's I can cope with the idea of somebody coming in in that beautifully articulated sort of two minds of pushing and pulling help me but tell me but take the control but and it's a really difficult dynamic to be in but also doctors and medical students are picked I think for being really good at justifying the reasons for doing things so they have a train you into having a way of thinking um, which can be really unhelpful and I remember not somebody I was treating but a really good friend of mine who's a doctor who's had the most horrific depression and at the time I was just starting off in psychiatry and I did the really unhelpful, and would never do it now, thing of trying to do a bit of CBT and sort of challenge some of her cognitions. But the thing is, she's so much cleverer than I am that I came away thinking, God, yeah, you are. You're entirely right. The world is this awful place. <laughs> she challenged mine. And I wasn't good enough at the time to sort of recognise that dynamic. It's just so heartbreaking to watch when you see somebody who is so clever manage to completely out-argue you or out-challenge you in a conversation. And you want to go, yes, but the thing is, you're just unwell. You are cleverer than me and you're just unwell. These two things could coincide at the same time. And there's also the thing that I've read quite a lot about that a lot of doctors feel like illness doesn't belong to them, as in they can't become unwell because they're a doctor, which obviously isn't true. But do you think there's something to that? 
as like as a doctor you think like I treat illness I I don't guess it yeah 100% and I guess I don't exactly know where it comes from but you can't deny that there is like this inherent stigma that like exactly what you've said there like doctors don't get sick and and I think it goes along with quite a lot of the things that that dehumanize doctors in a way I I mean that in the way that I think people just in general often forget that like nurses and doctors are just people as well and again, I'm not sure quite that is, I guess, maybe because it's like the nature of the work and the responsibility that we may have. And then I think when you forget that someone's a person and, for example, take like the, the whole clapping thing during the pandemic and kind of NHS workers being hailed as as, as heroes, which is a, a, another word I kind of have a problem with. When you're kind of hailed as something as big as a hero, then again, it's like you're not quite expected to have those kind of issues that a normal person would have like becoming ill whether it's physically or or mentally and I guess it's also to do with just kind of like the working pattern and the lifestyle and things of being a doctor like you know training can be brutal in any specialty and (laughs) who's got time to be sick in those situations so again it's like whether it's like a denial thing you just you just think I can't be sick I'm a doctor I can't be sick so yeah it's a difficult one and Nicola like do you have any ideas on like why doctors kind of do this thing of I can't be sick I'm I'm above illness well I I think and I'm going to sound like an actual psychiatrist for a second but I suspect that there's something about actually we dehumanize our patients because if we actually sat with the horror of what goes on for the 1200 people that are sitting in the building down the road from me in the BRI just now then we're we couldn't cope with that, that one human brain can't. So I think actually we also dehumanise our patient and they are the sick and they are the other. And so the defence against it, we could never be like them. We could never be that close to death or that destroyed. So we're not patients, so we can't get sick. And all of this is like an unconscious thing, but it ends up exactly where you are like, I can't be a doctor if I'm sick, which is patently nonsense. And I think if it was going to be really challenging as well for a second, there's something really fascinating about the way that doctors and medical students think about ourselves in this situation. Whenever we think, well, it's not fair that this has happened, you think, yeah, but there's 800 people having a significantly less fair day because they're in hospital and these things happen. And it's just weird. It's just such a human thing to constantly have a sort of comparing yourself with each other, but comparing a very select group with each other. So we never think, oh my goodness, I'm so lucky that I'm not an ITU, but we just think, God, I'm really unlucky because everybody else seems to be doing it so much easier in this small team of people I see on the, the team WhatsApp group. And it's just fascinating. Sorry, that was a bit of a rant. No, I think I think rants make for good conversation most of the time. It's good to hear them. Um, to Bethan, did, did you ever think that this could like end your career as a doctor? Did you ever have like a fear over what would happen to your career if you were diagnosed with something? I've been thinking about this and I guess maybe subconsciously I did because for a long time I kind of didn't tell anyone in work it wasn't kind of a secret that I was ashamed of or anything like that and I was kind of open with with some friends about kind of what was happening and things but in terms of like my seniors and colleagues at work I just didn't know if I should tell them and then when I thought about it I thought "Mm, maybe I won't because I'm taking medication now and I can just kind of try and deal with it myself and kind of plodded along like that for about a year until it became kind of, I guess, generally more apparent 
and I had an ARCP and my portfolio was just in a mess and kind of part of the problems that I had with kind of the depression and anxiety was I guess just motivation and organizational problems and I hadn't been able to get my stuff together and and I was kind of questioned about that quite severely and it was very much like well you're not taking it seriously and you know why should we kind of you know give you another chance and things like that and I it was only then that that year down the line that I felt like you know I'm not using this as an excuse but I have to be honest with you about something and this is why I'm potentially struggling And I guess when I think about that now, then maybe, yes, subconsciously, I don't think I've ever, I've never felt ashamed of having an issue or, you know, struggling with depression or anything like that. I've never felt kind of that way. So I wonder whether it is that I was, yes, subconsciously like worried about my career and stuff and being in a, being in a specialty such as neurosurgery at the time, which was very, it's very small, it's very insular, news and gossip travels fast. And again, I wasn't kind of worried about other people knowing I guess what I was worried about was suddenly people not taking me seriously or thinking I couldn't hack the work or or do the job properly and then I thought that would kind of implicate on my training opportunities people wouldn't want to kind of operate with me or wouldn't want to be on call with me and stuff so yeah I think there is a real worry and especially as well when you kind of hear these stories about kind of people with mental illness being put in front of like fitness to practice panels and the stress and the kind of worry and upset that those can cause as well you know there is a possibility I guess if you go to a fitness to practice panel that you could kind of like lose your training number or lose your job or lose your spot in medical school so I guess that also then makes you think that it might have an implication on your career and you know might be another reason why you might not kind of be as open with it as you would with kind of people in your personal life. And, and to Nicola like going on about the the GMC process of fitness to practice panels do you think that makes it harder for doctors to like come forward with like a mental illness because they like it's there's been studies, there's been um, interviews, and a lot of doctors describe it as an intimidating kind of really legal process. Let's make no bones about it. The GMCs are a regulatory body. They're not supportive. It is absolutely a stressful process, and I can't pretend otherwise. And although some nice people from the GMC will come and point out that 95% of the complaints made by the public or by a colleague are dismissed out of hand because they're just random or about dentists or about something else that has nothing to do with the GMC. There is a small minority of them. And it is it is absolutely a regulatory process. It's there to make sure that that person is safe to practice. I think, and I don't have the statistics on hand though, and so I can only really speak from the, from the medical school and our interaction with the GMC, but I can't remember the last time I read about somebody whose the primary problem was a mental illness and ended up in fitness to practice. In fact, the only time I've got personal knowledge of somebody having conditions put on their practice as a qualified doctor, he said afterwards, thanks very much, I was using quite a lot of drugs. And it did stop him going to practice. But he absolutely did have a problem. He put his hands up to it and said, yeah, I've been using a lot of illegal substances. And the GMC were right to get them. So I'm not saying in any way to get it right all the time. I think statistics show that there's um, a lot of bias against certain people from certain backgrounds, from certain specialties, and from certain uh, grades. But I, and I'm also not going to lie and say it's supportive. From the medical school point of view, I've been senior tutor for five years, and hand on heart, I can't remember the last time I had to tell the GMC about somebody because they were unwell, and why we would give them a warning or ask them to withdraw 
because they were unwell. You guys do have to declare formal warnings to the GMC when you apply for provisional registration, but I swear to God, it's usually about public urination and signing each other into lectures. If there's any medical student that has any um, mental health problem, we try our best to go to through the supportive, not tell anybody about it processes as much as possible. And it's only when someone's so unwell that we have to say, please stop, we're taking this decision out of your hand, suspend studies for a while, get better, come back, that we tell the GMC. And even then, they don't care because they just say, we're glad you're better. So I think there's loads and loads and loads of myths about the GMC. And, there, and there's some truths as well. But there's loads of scare stories out there that I just personally haven't seen the evidence for. Thank you for putting that to bed. I think uh, quite a lot of people, there's so many myths about the GMC, like going coming to get you, basically any mistake you do make. I'm not taking that off the table right I think that would be foolish but I don't think it's good to be about mental illness as a primary concern and I think if there's apart from the massive wisdom coming from Bethan if there's anything you want to take home from this podcast it's please don't piss in public. Yeah that's a, that's a very good motto for life I think in general <laughs> I abide by that one yeah. <laughs> Achievable goals Bethan that's my secret. <laughs> Don't even have to try that hard to achieve that one. I'll make sure to put that in the description. So the next question I had was, as doctors, is there ever like a pressure to work through illness, to cope with illness? Oh, like just to keep coming into work even though you know work is making it worse yeah I think unfortunately there is and there's a number of reasons so again it can kind of like stem from that stigma that we that we just spoke about in terms of doctors kind of not being sick and kind of carrying on coming to work every day is another way in which you can kind of go through with that but there's things as well like you know you might be on a on a rotor for on call and then you know, you have that worry about, well, if I stop coming into work, then I'm going to leave like the ward short or the, the on-call rotor short. And then you have that very real guilt. And then that ends up making making you feel worse mentally and adding kind of to your stresses and, and your worries and stuff as well. And then there's also those kind of, I guess, those rules that, you know, we should be doing kind of postgraduate exams by a certain time. And there's, again, like, an, a, you know, an official rule of we're all trying to get like research and stuff on our CV ready for ARCP and things like that. And, you know, that pressure is very real. And there's such a competitive nature within medicine that there is this feeling that you're constantly competing against people. Even when you have a training number, it's still a competition because then eventually, you'll get CCT and then you'll be competing with other people for like consultant jobs. So it never quite finishes. So again, I think there's something about taking time off work and worrying about getting behind with, with that sort of thing. And yeah, that pressure all kind of mounts up and you can see how easy it is to just carry on going to work and burning yourself out further and, and dipping lower and, you know, getting yourself kind of more, more stuck in that hole, as I always used to call it, because you just feel that pressure to just do what, do your job and also go beyond your job and like the, all those cv building things you just don't want to you don't want to stand out for the wrong reasons i guess and that you know we might interpret as taking time off sick as being a wrong reason to kind of stand out or a reason that we might get labeled in some sort of way and nicola like what do you think of this kind of pressure that doctors feel to like work through everything even if they they know they're sick they accept they're sick but they won't take time off i think i agree with bethan actually and i think that it's one of the difficulties for most of our work that the work doesn't stop just because you're there you can't put it aside and say i'll come back to it tomorrow i'm just gonna have a lie-in even though that might be best for you the work keeps coming and there's only a finite amount of resources to deal with it so when you're off sick 
it's not just a feeling that the the team is short, but it's it's the truth. And actually, the really simple way of getting around that is to properly resource teams and have floating doctors and floating nurses and enough staff around to cover the gaps. That would be enough to to do it. Um, but we don't have the staff to do it. And I think it would be really foolish of me to pretend that if in my team four people are all sick that I don't feel the extra pressure. Of course I do. I guess the trick is to only work and this is much easier when you're a consultant, is to try to work in a team where you know that people can manage without you. Nobody's indispensable. And nobody is actually indispensable because most of the time the work does go on. It's a bit harder for everybody, but everybody still leaves at the end of the shift and the work goes on. And we can't be aiming for a complete cure is that is the idea that their shift has ended or their work is done. The ED doors are still open. They just keep coming. It's very true that, yeah. Somebody once told me that why are you aiming for your inbox to be empty? That's the point of it, is to have stuff in it that you've got to do. And it's a bit like that in the hospital. Why are we aiming for the hospital to be empty? We built it to be full of sick people that we need to look after. As a slight aside, I also think that we become doctors because we're really good at passing exams and we like certainty. And... As soon as we go into a place where the way to get that certainty of passing the ARCP is to do more work, if I just work hard enough, I can be more certain that I can be the best that I can do it, is enormously seductive. And the postgraduate exams and even medical school exams are an object lesson and nothing being certain anymore. And certainly, I think, but better disagree with me, the work on the board is like nothing certain. Yeah. I don't think we train you well enough for that. Yeah, definitely agree with that. Speaking of um, medical schools and training, do you think that doctors are kind of taught to cope and be resilient too much? Almost, there's, there's some people will say that it's almost to the point of it's hurting doctors because they're like in their head, they've just got, I've got to be super resilient, I've got to be super resilient. So it's almost too much. Yeah, it's definitely a it's definitely a trigger word for me. <laughs> that the 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 resilience word. I yeah, I struggle with that one. But I don't know. I feel like so I so I qualified like nine years ago, and I think back to even medical school. Then I genuinely don't think, and even back as like an F one F two, I I don't recall having as much kind of emphasis put on resilience as I've had in the last couple of years. And I think that says a lot about the system that we're in and how that's changed. And obviously staffing's never been great, but, you know, again, that's kind of getting worse with the current situation and things. And I don't know, the, 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 the resilience thing, I, I agree with you there because I feel like it's now bandied about so much. It's constantly, you know, constantly on PowerPoint slides, e-learning, compulsory e-learning that we have to do, you know, it's constantly like rammed down our throats in a way that I'm like, well, there's obviously a reason for this. And that reason, in my opinion, is that because we are expected to be that resilient person, whereas in reality, it's the system that's the problem. And I know kind of people keep saying this and I'll make no apologies for repeating it again because, you know, it's not very often that the individual who is trying to become more resilient is is the problem. It's it's the system-wide issue, but we're the ones that kind of can't really do anything about it as individual people. And so I guess then, yeah, trusts and things think that we have to become more resilient. And it is quite damaging because, it, again, it goes into that thing of 
just feeling like you need to carry on. You know, I, I keep getting told about resilience. I keep getting lectures about resilience. So I'm obviously expected to be resilient. So I just have to, I just have to carry on. And then again, you end up kind of, it's just, it'll take something just to kind of, I guess, metaphorically tip you over the edge in some sort of way. And then where, you know, where, where do you end up? It could, you know, it could be catastrophic. And Nicola, what do you think of this over-resilience kind of culture that Bethan is uh, speaking about? Well, I kind of agree with Bethan. Again, how dull for you on a podcast. But I don't think people are resilient. I think teams are resist- resilient. I think systems are resilient. I think people are human, disgustingly human. And I think the way medicine is staffed isn't in keeping with the way medicine has um, developed. To sound really old, 20 years ago, when I graduated, then I think there was a lot more distress and stress, but I think there was a lot less illness because you were held in a team. And you did that by working really long hours and sticking with the same group of people. And the patient care wasn't as good. Patient care now is phenomenally many times better, safer, more consistent, more influenced by evidence. It's absolutely fantastic compared to the stuff that we were doing 20 years ago. But you can't expect one team working 16 hours or 20 hour shifts to deliver it. It's just impossible. We've not found the right way of delivering the complex care, which is much better, in the same way of holding a person in a team so that when you're having a bad day, it's not catastrophic. It's just everybody else in the team goes, yeah, all right, get home early, get your head down and carries on without you and you feel less guilty about taking some time off and there's more education about how you are able to manage not cope but manage a really stressful job because you need to be taught how to prioritize and how to be efficient and what stuff needs done and what stuff can be left and how to handle all of the stuff you need to be taught the best way we've found so far is teaching by experience but i don't think i've ever taught anyone to be resilient other things i've not taught people to do is be resilient to cope be happy um, not worry because just by shouting or repeating it it doesn't it just doesn't work if it did I could retire from a clinical job but you have taught us to not pee in public <laughs> my next question was so a lot of doctors do self-diagnose and self-prescribing things so it's kind of a two-part question like how common is self-diagnosis and are the judgment or symptoms really clouded because of this? Like, can they really see it in themselves? Yeah, 100%. Before I kind of finally acknowledged, I guess, that I had or was suffering with depression, I was convinced I had an underactive thyroid. Like, I was like, that's what I've got. I'm going to get my bloods done. That's what it's going to show. Got all the symptoms. And then, of course, I, I, I didn't. But it's again it's that thing of kind of maybe knowing too much or thinking that you know best and and like we were saying earlier on the kind of beginning of struggling with maybe your mental health is never clear cut you know like if you break a leg it's bloody obvious that you've broken your leg you know it it looks wrong it feels wrong but with like depression anxiety and you know any other mental illness it's not always a you might even not have the insight but b it's never that clear cut so you know you could you could pinpoint s- symptoms to lots of different things because we do know too much in that respect we know what things mean and we've got this whole kind of knowledge base of, of various symptoms and lectures and and things and that we've been to and we can maybe apply those to ourselves and that can kind of go both ways it can kind of be like 
you know, going to the point where you, you know, you think you might have something, I don't want to say the word hypochondriac, but like, you know, thinking that you have something catastrophic and you become obsessed with that, or it could be the complete opposite way in just kind of completely downplaying what's going on for you, whether it's physical or, or kind of mental symptoms and just kind of, yeah, writing that off as, oh, it's nothing, whereas in reality, it's quite clearly something. So it's um it's a double-edged sword, a sword, I think, because I'm very grateful to have that knowledge and to have maybe that bit more of awareness in terms of kind of symptoms and things but very much guilty of yeah thinking that I know exactly what's going on when at that time I 100% did not that kind of thing of thinking that oh I'm a doctor I must know again you're right there's that pressure that that if you don't know then people be like you're a doctor but yeah it doesn't it, I think it's very good not to kind of be over over self-diagnosing, if that makes sense. That's a, actually a good quality of a doctor, I think, personally. Um, and Nicola, so what do you think of this over self-diagnosing that a lot of doctors probably do? Your judgment gets clouded because it's yourself, whereas if you saw it in a patient, you'd say something different. I guess that one of the things that I find so heartbreaking is when you're sort of sitting, speaking to a doctor in clinical practice or um, at a medical student, and you can see that their insight is just off because they're unwell. And that's one of the parts of being unwell. And you just don't even want to go there with the, your insight about you usually off. I don't know what your insight about patients is because I think you're unwell. So it's just, it's just really odd. And it's just heartbreaking to even have to think about those conversations because it's such a assault to the identity of a doctor to have to say, I don't think you're making the best decisions or because I just don't think your brain is working. Because that's what mental illness is, isn't it? Right? If I had an Olympic athlete who was running on a broken leg and just kept going and kept going, you wouldn't expect them to be able to get their best times. But we've got this massively, fantastically educated, complicated brain, and we think that we could still keep going with these really difficult concepts when it's just not working properly, when it's like the broken leg. That's just so sad to me they want to go stop get an operation take some time off do you think there's a stigma against doctors getting mentally ill a lot of people might say and a lot of um articles say between doctors between colleagues there's kind of some sort of stigma against becoming mentally unwell as a doctor yeah definitely i i, I guess that touches on a few points that we've kind of discussed already, you know, kind of in doctors being unwell or or ill in general, but specifically with regards to mental illness, yeah, it, it does kind of, well, there is a stigma essentially because it's kind of like that feeling that, again, I should be more resilient because I've been told to be more resilient or I'm working X, Y, or Z rotor, I've got into this training scheme. So, yeah, I you know, I, I need to kind of, try harder and if I am mentally unwell in any which way then that means that I'm not good at my job or that I can't work as hard and these are kind of all the thoughts that I've had personally and I know other kind of doctors and healthcare professionals have have voiced similar things and ultimately I don't know if if I'm okay to mention but services like NHS practitioner health like they wouldn't exist if there wasn't a stigma amongst doctors and healthcare professionals for you know for, for for mental illness the fact that they are so heavily subscribed as they are currently and the fact that this service has just grown and grown and grown grown sorry I think just 
demonstrates that that point fantastically you know there's a huge need for it because not only might the needs be different in terms of healthcare professionals being patients but also yeah because there is that stigma and they may feel for whatever reason they can't kind of access help in more traditional ways or you know be able to kind of get support from their colleagues and things like that. I want to ask Nicola that, like, in your experience, is it different for a doctor trying to accept that they're mentally ill compared to when they're physically ill? Yeah, I think it is. I think it's for all of those reasons. It's for all the stigma that we have with our patients who present with mental health problems and we don't want to be them. It's for the reason that psychiatry is a relatively undersubscribed profession because we don't want to be treated by them. It's for the reason that even people who I know don't want to sit in my waiting room even when they're not there clinically, in case somebody thinks that they ought to be or they have been or they might be mentally ill. So there's a huge amount of stigma in that way. And I think that Bethany made such a good point that about the practitioner health, it wouldn't be there and it wouldn't have grown so much if there wasn't a need. But it also highlights to me something else, and coming back to the idea of teaching resilience, we've got more services talking about whatever resilience is, coping, managing, tolerating distress, well-being, mental health, We've got more getting chucked at people than ever before in the history of humankind. And it would seem that's not working. So maybe we don't need more of whatever we're doing. Because one of the really interesting things about psychiatry in general, I think, is that really common sense solutions are often counterintuitively detrimental. So I think that one of the genuine difficulties about all of that, but when doctors get sick, when patients get sick, is when medical students get sick is that we think we know the answers and something about support will be the answer but I'm not sure I've got evidence to back that up given the number of people that are like me trying to do it and how much worse the problem is getting so maybe maybe we need to do something different and whether that's do something more like practitioner health and actually remove instead of reintegrating mental health care back into physical health care maybe we need to remove it I don't know maybe we need to do nothing maybe we need to and find a different way of messaging that this isn't your fault that you're ill and you don't need to cope, you don't need to manage, you just need to be good enough. I, I honestly, it's turned into a bit of a wandering rant because I don't know what the answer is, but whatever we're doing, doesn't. it's not got the answer. Um, Bethan, in your experience, when you were unwell or when you, even if you're still unwell at the moment, do you, have you learned anything from your experience so far that you feel like you could apply to your own practice? Yeah, I've learned that I'm not invincible, essentially. <laughs> That was the first thing that kind of really struck me was that I I always knew I was human. That sounds bizarre to say that out loud, but I think I was under that ilk for no particular reason that I just assumed that nothing would ever affect me. I just, yeah, I just had that assumption that I would just kind of be fine. So it's 100% kind of made me realise kind of what the reality actually is. And even though I kind of wouldn't wish, you know, kind of how I felt and stuff on my on my worst enemy, I also am very grateful for the things that it has taught me that I might not have been, you know, able to experience if I hadn't kind of, you know, or I'm, or I'm not experiencing anxiety and depression. And one of the coping mechanisms that I use was to kind of read a lot into like psychology and, and, and about depression and anxiety. And I kind of wanted to know the nuances and the ins and outs and, and things like that. Um, and so it's given me like a massive understanding of, you know, I can't ever say exactly that I will relate 100% to someone else who's going through depression, but there are certainly aspects of things that I can relate to. 
And a lot of our patients that come through for whatever reason have mental health problems for, you know, whether it is due to triggers in their life or whether it's due to physical illness. And to be able to sometimes have a more understanding conversation with with those individuals is incredibly profound. And I'm not saying I would go and, and tell them, you know, oh, yeah, I've got depression, I take this medication, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. It's more so kind of an understanding of what they're going through to some extent and, and fostering a connection with that. And one of the saddest things it's taught me, though, is is something that Nicola mentioned previously, is kind of the the stigma that we have of patients. I say we as like a medical professional that you know any symptom that they kind of have, no matter what the condition is, if they've got a if they've got a background of anxiety and depression, it's like you know you always hear people are like, oh, they've got that because they're crazy or something, which I absolutely despise. And even when I was working in neurosurgery, we'd admit people with like possible cordial syndrome, and then the scan would be completely negative for cordial obviously, but they'd still have this excruciating back pain and leg weakness and I had bosses that were like oh they've got a background of anxiety and depression like it's probably related to that and yeah I understand there's functional disorders but I'm sorry I'm not buying that everything can be put down to your mental health problems so it gave me a massive understanding for that and it's made me want to be even more of an advocate for those kind of situations or or patients or or problems in that you know I want to be the one that challenges those and I'm not going to kind of just kind of be like oh yeah it's because they've got anxiety that they have this headache or whatever so yeah those are the main things I think I'd kind of been made aware of perfect can I just say you're going to be wasted in general practice come to us I come and be Lisa's psychiatrist this is what we do all the day it's brilliant I was torn between psychiatry and GP, honestly, I was completely torn. Leading on from that, Nicola, do you think that a doctor becoming ill mentally or physically can make them more well-rounded as a doctor? You know, I really struggle with this one because I think one of the main defences that doctors have, because they tend to be sort of clever people, is the rationalisation and the sublimation of saying, well, this is the good that came out of it. And I'm always really hesitant when I speak to a doctor who's been unwell to even go anywhere near that because they shouldn't have been unwell in the first place. Like, it's not fair. It's not worth it. And being unwell is always unfair. No one deserves to be ill physically or mentally. So while I think it can be a sign of a really mature sense patronising, but I mean a sort of long-term acceptance of what's happened and you've done your best with the cards you're dealt, and this is trying to find a way of making sense of it. I, I personally am always really hesitant about saying it'll make you a better doctor. Because mm. I'm, I'm just not sure. Maybe reading more would have made you a better doctor. Or watching brilliant films would have made you a better doctor. Or a degree in English literature before medicine would have made I, Like, I don't know. I don't know. But it seems like this is a really rubbish way of finding out, like, having to go through an illness. Mm. That's very true. It's not the best way to find out whether something makes you better or worse at your job. My final question, if there was one piece of advice you could give to doctors who are becoming or are currently physically or mentally unwell, um, what would it be? I, so I'm currently obsessed with the word compassion. And I mean that in kind of having compassion, not just for others, but for yourself as well. That's something that, God, I think all of us struggle with, but it's been one of those kind of light bulb moments for me in terms of trying to recover from whatever this is and um, yeah we can often be like our own worst enemies we're always kind of our own harshest critics but to notice I think that something is not right for you for whatever reason and then to 
to look at that with compassion and not be like your own bully and be like, you know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be feeling like this. You know, what right do I have to feel like this? I've got a good job. I've got a roof over my head. Why do I feel like this? Instead of questioning it, you know, I'm not saying this is easy, but to have, you know, to kind of not accept it either, but to look at it in a different way and just being like, okay, this is happening. Maybe it's a type of acceptance. I don't know, but yeah, this is happening. This is not normal for me. This is making me feel horrendous. I'm going to be more compassionate to myself with regards to that and allow myself to seek help, allow myself to go to the GP or to self-refer to practitioner health rather than kind of, yeah, trying to beat it out of your yourself in a way, if that makes sense. So that would be my take home. Just, yeah. I, the other way to frame it is, is don't be a D-I-C-K to yourself, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> But the nice way to say it is compassion. That's really good. And Nicola, what would you give us a piece of advice? Yeah, I mean, I think Bethan's hit it spot on. There's a phrase that's kept coming back to me over this conversation, and it's just been good enough. And we've had that concept as a good enough parent in sort of psychiatry for decades. You don't have to be pro. You just need to be good enough most of the time. Good enough sister, good enough son, good enough partner, good enough doctor. Most of the time, that's all right. And I love the compassion for yourself. And as Beth, it says, stop trying to be your own doctor. Be kind, be compassionate, be good enough, and then go see your GP. That was a really good conversation I think we've just had. Um, thank you both for being here. It's been really helpful. Oh, no, thank you. But I do have one more question. And that is, if you were any vegetable, which vegetable would you be? I want to be something like ridiculous. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of ridiculous vegetables. I think I'm with you on this one, Beth. And my first thing that came into my head was artichoke, just because I think it sounds amusing in a Scottish accent. But I think it's going to sound even better in Welsh. Artichoke. Yeah, that's a, that's actually a good one because I feel like that's like a little bit fancy as well, a little bit different, a little bit fancy. Uh, well, I guess sticking to my Welsh roots, I'll probably be a leek, I guess. Very versatile. Chop it up, stick it in anything. That sounds horrendous. Oh, God. Just grab that bit. Yeah, because I'm Welsh, I'd be a leek, yeah. <laughs> So we have a leak and Nicola, have you been settled on the artichoke? Uh, artichoke. <laughs> I'm not sure if I can get the right voice for it, but artichoke sounds pretty good. Thank you both so much for coming on. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast, What Happens When Doctors Get Sick. That went pretty well for a first time and we had some pretty interesting vegetables. I reckon I'd be sweet corn. If you are affected by any of the themes covered in this podcast, please visit the Medicine360 website where there are some great resources about the topics. Again, thank you for listening, and I have been Damsi Dari.